North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. The 8th Annual Men's Gathering is happening at Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 21st through the 24th. Join other Christian men for a relaxing weekend of fellowship, feasting, and fun of every kind. Men will learn how to resist tyranny and how to have a good conscience as fathers, men of the church, and citizens from our main speaker, Dr. Kuntz. He'll guide everyone there through scripture and church history as we seek to live as free men. Check out our website at www.mensgathering.us for more information and to register. You can also search Men's Gathering on Facebook for updates leading up to the event. It is going to be a wonderful weekend for men to relax in God's beautiful creation. The timely topic will be an encouragement and provide much-needed strength as we go to battle against the powers of this world. We hope you'll join us for the 2022 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Dr. Kuntz, are you familiar with the Collective Strength Initiative? <laughs> no, not at all. Please, please inform. Yeah. So the Collective Strength Initiative 
was hosted for 10 days beginning December 9th, 2021 at the Israeli Finance Ministry in Jerusalem. And what it was oh, was yeah, a yeah, war yeah. game yeah. of 10 countries, uh, the big ones in the in the in the field, USA, Austria, Germany, Netherlands, uh, trying to imagine a simulation of a cyber attack on the global financial system. That is, what do we do if there's an economic collapse that is worldwide? And, you know, maybe you're more familiar with Event 201, and it just sounds a little too much like Event 201 Part 2 for some of us uh, conspiracy theorists who, you know, conspiracy theorists is what they call news two years before it comes out. I guess these days, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, just to be clear. I'm a student of conspiracies. So there you go. That's, okay. um, that's where we all are. So, so you, <laughs> you sounded like you had heard about this though. You just didn't know what it was called. And yeah, I, I, had to yeah, dig yeah, to I don't, find the I don't name know of if it. I heard that or I skipped over it or whatever. Yeah. I have heard about it. And the issue here, a couple things related to what we'll be talking about over the next several weeks one is the role of states in the financial system, which has always actually been more tenuous maybe than people understand. I think it's possible that, that most people have been familiar with the names of bankers for about the past 200 years, but not with how they relate to states and the control that they have over states, even though that has been a reality as long as there have been functional international bankers going back to medieval Italy. So now states are trying to assert control not only over international finance, including one that we'll talk about somewhere down the road where there's a nation that has allied itself with banking most tightly, which is Switzerland, and has therefore actually preserved some sovereignty many don't have. But our states are also now have to be worried about uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain technology, which could enable non-state actors, to use the bland political science term, to exercise greater sovereignty than they have in the past. This will obviously be discussed as the result of criminal activity or the desire to hide criminal activity, right? That's how state regulation of especially cryptocurrency and the flow of not just crypto, but various currencies will be presented. This is a cover for illegal activity, which undoubtedly some of it will be, and therefore it will all be determined to be illegal. And I think what they are trying to exercise ultimately is control over digital currency of any kind, right? So not just crypto, but also potentially central bank digital currencies, which we'll discuss coming up here. But you know, even control over the flow of information, as well as trading capacity for all kinds of currencies and commodities. Their sense that that is somehow slipping away is the reason that you get things like the exercise you just mentioned. So you don't think it has anything to do with them planning anything that they're going to make a lot of money from when it all collapses? Well, they always try to make money, right? So we've seen that with COVID, but I think probably, you know, in a couple of months, we will there's a lot there's a lot of things that i have kind of planned out in a in a document that probably only myself and and google know about but in it in a couple of months we will be getting to the question of what climate change is for hmm. what that's about why that what, how and where that term came from because the problem that they have is is there's always several facets here 
only one of which is their capacity to find technological control over certain things that almost nobody understands. <laughs> For instance, cryptocurrency. <laughs> so that's that's one facet for which I think things like this exercise are training and publicity. But the question you have to ask yourself is, why are there news articles about this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the reason that there are news articles about this is as a kind of running threat. It's sort of like right now, as we record, they're making a big deal out of the fact that Boris Johnson is unpopular. But the British media has spun that unpopularity as a result of his breaking COVID restrictions in a garden party. Mm-hmm. So it's being called Partygate. It's what, what's hidden under there is his unpopularity with Tory voters themselves, really over not just COVID restrictions, which they, they're fine with Boris breaking them. They, they wanted them gone for themselves a long time ago. In addition to that, his horrible record on immigration. So what they can do is they can recognize that something is trending in a certain direction and then manage the trend. I think something similar is, is going to happen with currency flows. So there's a paper that came out from the Fed, our, our Federal Reserve, this, I want to say earlier this week, maybe late last week, here as we record in January. And it is about the creation of a central bank digital currency by the United States of America. Okay. So that's different from a stable coin. We'll talk about that later when we get to those probably next week. But if you go find that paper, you're going to want to notice that that is all framed as an issue of equity and justice and the capacity for remittances, which is obviously not a concern if you live in Kansas and your parents live in Missouri, okay, for remittances to flow with relatively little trouble and tax back to home countries. So this is telling you that their desire for ease of international transfer of assets is not a desire to make it easy for you, a holder of you know unstable and potentially collapsing or collapsed American dollars, to find a refuge in cryptocurrency or gold or Swiss francs, who knows? It is to enable a much larger immigrant population, we've already seen this with the Biden administration, to enable that population, which is being brought in, I guess, to staff Amazon warehouses, that population, it will be easy to transfer money to El Salvador or Democratic Republic of the Congo or wherever they're from, right? So even these things that seem kind of really future oriented and are not comprehensible to a lot of people, well, how are you going to do that? You have to make that population sympathetic or desirable to the American population. And that is going to require something bigger than just hey, do you even know what remittances are? Oh, I guess you don't because you're not an immigrant. So let me explain to you what those are and here's what they are and here's how they're helpful. And then you're sitting there and you live in Kansas and you don't know anybody who's Congolese necessarily. And if you did, you know, like his financial problems are his financial problems and you're like, I still don't care. I think climate change is going to help make you care. (laughs) <laughs> in the same way that the profits that you know Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and Moderna have made, the reason you cared about that is because you were terrified. Well, let's engage your sympathy, let's engage your whatever that's going to get you to care about people who are, you know, very deeply, as we're going to see, attached to not just banking, but our central bank, if this goes through and this happens the way that they're planning. 
for those folks who are even more attached to the system than you are to be sympathetic and desirable and necessary for you, even if it actually hurts your labor market, for example. Does it help to remember that the United States is a casino at this point? Um, I think that's I think that's always helpful. And what we mean by that is simply that it is not set up for the benefit of anyone except the people monetarily in charge of the place. So it's not set up necessarily in the same way that a casino doesn't exist necessarily for the welfare of the workers and certainly not for the welfare of the people who are there losing their money, right? So when we say that, we're saying, don't be surprised if a Congolese guy shows up in the middle of Iowa because he's there for monetary reasons, both on the people part of the people hiring him and on the part of himself and all the people that in between. So don't be surprised if anyone is anywhere. I don't know why anyone is surprised by, quote, diversity anymore. But the difficulty the regime therefore has is the need to sell diversity, which is not historically normal as good or obvious or beneficial. And the best way to do that is to say that we're all getting richer. I think what's really interesting is that to some degree, they're not even pretending that we're all getting richer anymore. So uh, oh, did you, didn't week, you hear inflation is yeah. good for you? Yeah, inflation is good for you. But also, if you go to the store, you know, and there's a storm coming and you live in a major city uh, and supply chains are hurt by a variety of factors having nothing to do with trucker vaccine mandates or California refusing to let owner operators unload at their ports, nothing to do with that. But if there are some shortages, you know, please don't take any more than you need. So there are always, as we record this, and as you listen to this, whenever you're listening, there are always innumerable factors flying around because it's an enormous casino and the owners don't, don't have as much control over the place as they, uh, as they sometimes think they do, or certainly nearly as much as they pretend they do. Right. Organized crime has a tendency to get out of control. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's answer a question if we can here at the start of this whole thing that um, it's not on your list, but, but I think it's very foundational. Yeah. It's a philosophical question in a sense. It's a practical question. It's one that yeah. um, I only ever asked because I was learning about cryptocurrency. And yeah. in order to understand cryptocurrency, you have to understand this. And that is, you know, what is money? How do you define money. I mean, we can all point at a dollar and be like, okay, well, that's right. money. Give me some, but that's not what I'm talking right. about. I mean, like, right. what is that thing? Why do we think it's valuable? We think it's valuable because it's doing one or more of usually when this is summarized, three different things. It is facilitating exchange between people, exchange of anything, services, goods. So a medium of exchange where instead of holding, you know, you have cops and I have hammers, and I don't want to hold my entire wealth in hammers, but I only need one cup, that's going to facilitate our exchange. And it's going to be a third thing that somehow we both agree is in some way valuable. So these three functions are pretty much always linked. A medium of exchange, the second one, therefore being a store of value. And it's, it stores value always, let's be honest, by virtue of human reckoning, which we'll talk about later, later actually this week, but it's got it's got some kind of value independent of my hammers and your cups. And then, because I'm going to have a certain amount of it, and I only need a certain amount of it, it also is a way of accounting for how much I have, or how much is owed me, or how much I owe. Right. 
So if you think about money in terms of human relationships, which is its most basic need, okay, I have this, or I need that, or I owe this, or I am owed that, the way to deal with that problem is by having money. So money should be thought of really as a technology and not as something natural or, or even obvious. I mean, in the same sense that steam engines or indoor plumbing are not necessarily obvious, but they're extremely useful once human beings come up with them. Money is a technology for dealing with exchange, accounting, and value. The notion that money is a technology is what in, is in the way, I think, of a lot of people embracing crypto. Crypto obviously is a technology, and there's this idea that the dollar bill is substantial. It's a, it's a thing right. like gold, right. or even right. that gold is substantial, that it somehow right. has an inherent value in and of itself. And so so seeing and pushing on that edge here that it's, it's a technology for storing work, if you can think of it that way. Debt yeah. is a story about storage work. And what yeah. we've discovered with these things we use as money is that when you get enough people to believe the story, it works. The problem is when people stop believing the story, right? Yeah, like I right. can't eat this greenback. What am I supposed right. to do with it, right? And right. even even more so now, you know, these these numbers on a screen that my bank says I has I have, but I'm not really allowed to withdraw them anymore. Um, well, that that it starts to cause some <laughs> questions, right? Yeah, and then yeah. crypt, crypto is a story that, in theory, when you hear it out, says, "Well, we can beat some of those other stories." And if you don't think it's a very good story, and you're like, "Well, there's no way, it's all fake." Well, it used to be worth what a couple of cents. It's worth fifty grand now. You know, just a single one of these things, and that's continued right. to move in a pretty convincing direction, contrary to the decline of the U.S. dollar in the last last two years, at least. So, you had a couple of things you want to say there. Please jump in. Yeah. And one way to think about it as a technology is to see that just like other technologies that we think of, and we've talked about a variety over the past couple of weeks, but firearms or certain farming practices or whatever, there are plenty of human societies that don't have it. Now, that is not just reckoned as those that you would think of as you know primitive hunter-gatherer tribes, right? The uncontacted tribes deep in the Amazon basin or something. We're also talking about how it's it's not normal in lots of places for most of history for people to hold much money, if any at all, right? So you have plenty of places in the United States, probably up to you know the Second World War, where people don't really they're not really using money or they're they're only using money for certain things that they cannot obtain locally. And that has to do with thinking about something that is sometimes called historically a gift economy. That is that, and this is thought about as, you know, maybe this comes about because of what people believe, or maybe this comes about because it's natural when the people that you interact with are, re are really kind of literally an extended family group, but that a gift economy means that, you know, I give you work and you give me, you know, whatever else it, it, it could be called barter, but the reckonings of value and the kind of accuracy of accounting is not really that great, right? No one is writing down precisely how much my first cousin that needs to come work for me is doing the day that he comes to work for me. I just need him to work for me. He's my cousin. That's the way it goes. We work until we're done. That takes however long it takes. And it takes however many days, maybe depending on the season, whenever the sun goes down and we can't work anymore. 
So something that you can notice is that as money gains, you know, currency, for lack of a better word, <laughs> circulation, abundance within a group of people, they will also change other conceptions, just like techn other technologies do change you and how you think about the world. You know, it'll say, well, you know, it used to be okay if I said, you know, this might take about two days, but since I'm getting paid by the hour, I need you to be accurate when you come to my house to say, fix my plumbing about how many hours you were actually working, because I don't like it when you just show up for two days and then bill me by the hour hmm. in dollars, not in like affection or, Hey, can you feed me dinner since I'm here anyway? Right. So you can see how like other technologies, money therefore changes human relationships because it's so much more accurate. I'm not saying that positively or negatively, it just is. It's so much more accurate and precise as a medium of exchange, a way of storing value and a way of accounting for what has happened, what has been done. The uh, the accuracy of money, you mentioned storing, you mentioned it impacting human relationships. And then you said it isn't really either good or bad, but it would seem to me that there there's a... There's a trade-off, uh, yep. and you know, having families which all want to see each other survive and do well yep. is a far away from you know, hey, we, we're fighting over the company and the value of the company now, and you got families splitting over this kind of stuff, yep. right? So, yeah, uh, the simplicity of life when uh, Jacob lived with his uncle. Uh, granted, they got in a fight too, but like when he first got there, it's like you're <laughs> the working for the food. Goats. Yeah, yeah, well, and you're working for your food, and now here's a goat, right? Exactly, but. Yeah. But even right. then, I mean, that, that's a far, far cry from uh, where we are now because his money was all in something that produced something, namely right. these animals, right? And this is something else I've learned from cryptocurrency to distinguish between money and wealth that yeah. uh, true wealth produces, money does not produce. It's a zero-sum game uh, and can be compared more to status in a lot of ways. And in fact, the relationship between money and status uh, goes hand in hand where people spend money to, to get status. In fact, if you look at yeah. where a lot of your money goes, that's where it goes. Um, and status also being a zero-sum game, something that is not necessarily produced, but is closer to wealth than money in terms of you can, you can barter your status into other things, right? So those three economies, uh, the debt of the story that we tell about stored work, uh, the status, it, that's the story we tell about ourselves and our value, and then the real actual substantial goods that people need and live from, which include relationships, um, that interchange is, is what's in revolution right now, I think I, I can say. Yeah. 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 I, the reason I was neutral about human relationships and money is because I think you're completely right about familial relationships. That is, I do not, <laughs> I hate when people do this, when they reckon up how much it costs to raise a child. Yeah. I mean, the absurdity of that, if you have a child, let alone more than one, is the reason that is absurd is because the human wealth, for lack of a, I, this problem, maybe it's a word in German, I don't know, the life wealth, that sounds like a German word, the life wealth of having another human being in your life whom you love for no particular reason other than that that person exists <laughs> far exceeds whatever, you know, this magazine writer at Forbes has decided raising a child in 2022 costs. It's, it's just absurd. Family cannot be put in terms of monetary cost. I mean, how much would I pay to see my child live rather than die? I can't give you a figure 
There's no figure on such things. Money is great for low trust and or distant relationships. That's what it's great for, right? And so as we're going to talk about next week, it's really no coincidence that seafaring, outward looking people groups usually are most inventive in money, but also in creating financial instruments of new kinds because they need a way to facilitate those three purposes and whatever other functions you want to add to money. Philosophically speaking, they need a way to facilitate those things with people who don't really know them and whom they don't really know. So I think money is total, is horrible if I'm trying to reckon how much is the love of you know, this near family member worth, you know, but it, it's great if I just need to get this thing done or this transaction established with this person I don't really know. And let's be honest, don't really care about. Right. Trying to trade with your enemy. It, it, yeah. it makes that a little, yeah. Yeah. little cleaner, exactly. right? And so there's some justice involved in that. Um, so we've done some work the last couple of episodes setting up a framework of societal growth, existence, and collapse. And yeah. we also did quite a bit of work looking at the industrial revolutions as the expansion stage of mm-hmm. Western civilization as it currently is, uh, of the one we're in. Um, yeah. And we've kind of made the case that that did lead to an apex. And now somewhere uh, after 1930, uh, we, we've been in an ongoing decline. So just to kind of recap on that a little bit. A bit yeah. though that that expansion phase it did see revolutions in abundance that have right. shaped how we think about money now and that's in some ways what again um, that abundance is what we're on the verge of of losing right because when you think about abundance you need to think in in terms of multiple forms of abundance so when Quigley is talking in tragedy and hope about various revolutions in various civilizations some of which happen in differing orders, depending on, you know, we talked about Japan jumping, you know, into (laughs) several centuries really fast at the end of the 19th century. But those revolutions generally begin with a revolution in food production, followed by in the West, a revolution in life expectancy and a revolution in industrial production alongside those things in the West, before there is a change in the way that, and the extent to which everything is financed, what is referred to when we talk about economics purely, but I'm applying just me. So that's all that it's worth. I'm applying this term to our lives generally, not just to our economic structures, the financialization of everything, which has progressed really rapidly especially in the past 50 years throughout the West, but America as a kind of peak of this, that financialization had to be preceded by the growth in the exchange of goods that Quigley usually describes when and where it occurs in a civilization as a mercantile revolution. So you go from a situation in which, you know, think about, maybe think about this in terms of food, because that's very kind of tangible, You know, you go from a situation in which you're, let's, I don't know, go back to the 17th century, right? So that's going to be maybe your eight times great grandparents, your seven or eight times great grandparents. They are eating what you might now call ancestral foods. (laughs) And, And the reason that they're doing those things, and we're not talking like paleo or carnivore or something, we're talking like 
you know, if your ancestors were in Northern Europe or some other temperate place, they're eating apples, right? And they're just eating a lot of apples, maybe pears. They're not eating bananas. They're doing that partly because exchange has not been established at any kind of scale between a place that bananas are grown and the place where your ancestors are living that is not a place you can grow bananas. So first, before you can have a financialization of everything, a need for so much exchange to be constantly going on where if the market is closed, you've still got a futures market cranking through the night, no matter what it is that you're trying to trade. Before all that, you need the capacity and someone to facilitate trade. So you're going to have a mercantile revolution that will then be followed by the need to finance things like those exchanges, as well as other purposes will identify by a financial revolution. And this will involve what in a book that we'll put in the show notes, Niall Ferguson, who is very much a court historian of these things. And that's why I picked him because I also want to show you that if you read a book that was written under some kind of, you know, great conditions of consensus, I mean, Niall Ferguson is a financial historian with the, you know, agreement of the Rothschilds. He wrote the history of the Rothschild family. Hmm. You can, they, they generally, here's how this works. They generally tell you everything you need to know. They just spin it in a way that is not helpful or truthful. That's the difference. So Ferguson will tell you very clearly a financial re uh, revolution exists to facilitate exchange and also to keep nations at a large scale and individuals at a small scale in hock, in debt to the one who controls finance. That's the point. And at that point, he's going to converge well, and we'll see this over the next several, really the next month. He's going to converge well with Quigley's theory about why the modern world is as distinctive as it is. Why, when you dig down on any kind of talking head internationally, probably that person had something to do with, for instance, the World Economic Forum. There are reasons this happened. There are ways that that happened. And, and that's what we're trying to lay out. So keeping people in debt is the power of money, right? That it, once you're, once you're indebted, and the story is believed not only by you, by all your neighbors, now there is a power over you. And what you're saying right. is that the modern economy of money, I don't know if I want to say it that way, but you know, the modern money has so expanded that it has power over large, large groups of people. So rewind this. Here. Right. You know, yeah. so you're, you're living in the, I don't know, 1600s, 1700s. And some guy from Italy shows up with a, a little piece of paper that says that this family in Italy uh, guarantees a certain amount of gold from him to be paid in the need of it being needed. And he goes to a local guy who's got a lot of money and that guy's like, okay, I'll give you the gold. Right. Um, yeah. So that had a certain level of power to it, but he, he, wasn't quite as likely to be like, okay, all of Britain bow before me or change your direction as a, as a people, you know, wear masks. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the ability yeah. to, to control larger and larger amounts of people seems to be connected to the modernization of money as a technology. Is that, is that fair? Really just the provision of money as a technology, right? Because you go from a situation in which, um, Let's take an example of housing, right? So there's a time in which housing is available if you want to own it in the United States, generally on a 10-year basis as a loan. So, and that has to do with lots of, obviously lots of other factors, including what we'll talk about in a couple of weeks um, as the price revolution. That's a term economists themselves use, which happens in the 20th century. But you, can, you get a house in those terms and you buy a house. And then you're done paying for it. 
So your debt load at any given time in your life is relatively low, and you actually can spend most of your adult life in no debt at all. Obviously, this is going to get harder the less agriculturally based your society is. The reason being, passing on land and passing on the improvements on that land are part of a family gift economy that can be assessed and valued for tax purposes by the state, but can also simply be given in a family or from you know a friend to friend, especially upon death, but maybe even before death. And none of that can really be touched exactly necessarily. So you know, I want to give you something and it's going to be of great value. And the state can come and say, well, its value is this many thousands of dollars. But to you, it's kind of inexpressible because it's what your livelihood is and the land provides for you and you have some left over. The, the, play, the time when money is going to begin to have power over you in that situation is when for some reason you become unstable through the contraction of debt. So when I, when I say like agrarian, for example, agrarian doesn't mean that we're all, you know, raising wheat and apples and we have chickens or something. Agrarian means that economically speaking, we will all be in hock to debt if enough people are not living inside of that gift economy based on the land, which produces by itself which my house in the city does not do, and or even if there are people on the land, they are in hock in order to provide for themselves. Because if you think about farming in the United States today, it is mostly a commercial provision of commercial crops for commercial purposes. It is not a self-provision that could generally be passed down. And even if it is passed down, it could be so thoroughly taxed that it becomes more worth your while and worth your legal and financial headaches to sell it rather than to keep it and cultivate it. So what we're looking at when we talk about money or financialization is how much of my life is taken over. Really, this is another way to say what I just said, how much of my life is defined by debt. And the degree to which my life is defined by debt is the degree to which money has power over me. If I don't, for instance, owe a debt to my wife, which is, I mean, I know that sounds absurd, but I'm sure there are households in which they're thinking this way, even monetarily about the spousal relationship. If I don't owe a debt to my wife, then we're not enslaved to each other. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I mean, we're not, it's not that kind of a relationship. I could be enslaved to a bank. I'm not enslaved to my wife because our relationship is not defined by money. So when you start thinking about money in terms of debt, which is the way that if you dig into this, you'll usually find when they're trying to explain what is money, then you begin to understand why slavery, money, and debt all appear next to each other and in a life so often together is because that is really the effect of money. And I don't, that, that this is metaphorically true, but it's also literally true that it enslaves, it determines, it defines what your life is about and how your time is going to be spent the same way that slavery, literal legal slavery would do. But it's also metaphorically true in that even if I have a ton of money, I therefore have to think about it and care for it and handle it. And that's all work too. So it is the expansion of debt into a life. That's, that's another way to think about what's happening here. 
And once you have stored work, you have to do work to stop people from stealing your stored work. And as soon as you start doing that, it becomes pretty clear that you're not able to stop the king from at least taxing <laughs> your stored work. And where the line yep. between taxation and thievery is, um, well, that, that maybe is one we're talking about a little bit, you know. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, whether and whether that theft be by direct taxation, whether it be by controlled inflation uh, or mm-hmm. these various uh, modern tools that we have. Um, so. I kind of want to ask an insert question here. We're yeah. leading toward like, you know, is money natural or unnatural? But, yeah. you know, sometimes you'll find in your Bible this phrase, you cannot serve God and money. But if you if you dig a little deeper there, you find out that that's not really the word. The word's mammon. So mm-hmm. would you distinguish between money and mammon for us? Mammon is the power of money or money represented really figuratively as a power money as distinguished from mammon could just be a technology in the sense that contrary to what many, many people think it is not money that is the root of all evil any more than it is farming or firearms. That is the root of all evil, but it is our incapacity to use technologies without misusing technologies, or in other words, the love of money, especially that is the root of all evil. So the issue here is that, and this is obviously a fine line, but this is why money may be used without sin. I mean, I can, I can use it as a medium of exchange or whatever for some other good, but it has to be turned to some other good because when it's not turned to some other good, money has a peculiar power. And this is recognized when something is recognized so widely mythologically, you, you should probably pay attention to it. This is why things like dragons sit on top of piles of money is because money has this peculiar power over human souls to enslave them. Even when we have tons and tons and tons and tons of it, it is a technology almost without parallel in human history to enslave its makers. So when we say that money is unnatural, one thing that we're saying there is that it's man-made, right? There's plenty of Confederate money that was printed during the short time that the Confederate States of America existed. The value that those things have is no longer their face value because there's nothing that would assure that face value. They have collector's value, you know, generally denominated in United States dollars, ironically, but they don't have a value that was originally assigned to them by, you know, the government that made their printing and provision coherent or worthwhile as much as they ever were worthwhile, but you see what I'm saying? So when you think about it that way, money is a technology. It needs to be used. Mammon is the power. You could even say the demon, the wicked angel that uses money, especially to enslave us and especially to enslave, not just our checkbooks or our time, but our spirits long before any of that. Right. Cause again, by itself, it doesn't do anything. Even, you know, forget the dollar and just think your gold coin and the dragon is great, great example, you know, lying there on the gold coins. What's it do? Nothing. (laughs) It shines, it's sparkly. I just, I just really like to feel like it has value. Well, and then there is this though, it convinces you that this storage of, of work, this debt that you have toward others, they're in your debt already. This will protect you in the future. 
that somehow now you have a yeah. an armor against tomorrow because of the amount of work you've been able to store up for yourself, which again, those who are really the most um, uh, complete in, in becoming smog as modern people, they aren't just storing it in the bank. They're, they're using it to continue to work for them. You know, they're, they, right. they realize that it, it still doesn't do anything by itself. It actually, it just devalues ultimately. Right. Um, and so, so in that regard, money is a sterile thing, right? And is that, is that kind of where you're going with that idea? Yeah, steril- the sterility of money. This isn't. This is an ancient discussion carried on and carried forward by Christians, generally in terms of whether the charging of interest is a valid thing. And the sterility of money is an assertion that it, by itself, unlike you know the goats of Jacob, does not produce itself. So when you're thinking about the charging of interest, which is biblically permitted somewhat like I distinguish the usefulness of money, it's permitted for low trust relationships outside of Israel. When you think about it that way, you can see that what the charging of interest really is, is a kind of penalty on the use of someone else's time. You have provisioned him with money. You are taking a tax on his time for the use of that, right? And because the money itself is not like growing right? It, it's, it's not a herd of goats. It's not just going to grow naturally. It grows as a result of a rep, as a representation, let's say, of the penalty for you gave him this upfront so that he will later pay you back with interest to recoup what you lost by not having that money immediately available to you. In and of itself, therefore, I am not sure that the charging of interest is like absolutely, totally wicked. I know that some have asserted that, Certainly throughout Christian history, I'm, I'm well aware of that, but I also understand that something is lost when you provision someone with something that then can no longer be you know, used by you at that time, at least. Interest is that, that tax for time. So I think that's debatable is what I'm saying, but the money by itself, utterly by itself sitting there in a pile underneath the dragon's belly, of course, makes no more extra money people have to mint more money, have to create more money by whatever means that's done. The idea that it is about low trust between the exchangers, I think it's really key there. And that the reason there is low trust is because of the human nature to tend to profit on the neighbor, right? So that I want to come out of the situation, not as a giver, but as a gainer. And that's where ultimately, I know I'm not going to say that uh, charging interest or more, more, I probably apropos to most of us, taking out a loan to buy your car, it does not mean you are some sort of greater sinner. But to see that in a perfect world, no such device would be needed, right? No such device would exist. Um, no one would be seeking to outbid or outdo each other, but there would be this kind of gift economy concept where we're in it right. together, uh, one right. way or the other. Uh, and that again comes back to, so mammon profit, I think is a key word there, right? Not, not the kind that tells the future, but the kind that seeks to take more than it gives. And to recognize that currently yeah. we live in a, an, in a philosophical economy in which that's all we want is profit, right? Like that, that, is, that yeah. is the whole no. thing. Yeah. No, that's totally right. And I mean, the absurdity of this is like, you know, if you, Jonathan, wanted to open a jujitsu, is it a dojo? What, what is yeah, a jujitsu place? Yeah. It's a dojo. You want to open a dojo and you want me to help you open that dojo. I would, of course, not charge you interest. But that is because of our relationship to each other. 
if you were just some random guy and I were, you know, the, the jujitsu dojo angel investor, and I don't know who this guy is, and I don't know what he's going to do with it, then, yeah, I mean, I don't trust him. So there's also, I think when you say like money is determinative, the gaining of money is determinative, see what that does to us. It, make, it makes everything is low trust. Everything is alienating. Everything is off-putting. And in this case, I mean, this is like, you know, I've heard horror stories about, you know, this or that poor person has to, you know, is forced by his family to like wear a mask in the house. Okay. They all are wearing masks in the house. That's really not that different from what we're saying money does to close relationships. It, it makes them distant. It takes what should be close and makes it distant. It takes what should be trusting and makes it untrusting. And that's actually natural if I'm, you know, I don't know, sailing around the Pacific Ocean and just encounter some random person. We need some way to exchange goods if we're going to have anything to do with each other besides like killing or pretending we're all the same. So if neither of those two things is going to happen, money, not that bad. If we don't know each other, we can't totally trust each other. Maybe money, not that bad. But if we know and trust each other, why are we treating this as if someone needs to profit from the relationship mm -hmm. any more than I'm profiting from being a brother or a son or a father or something? Yeah. So the fear of loss gets removed and you become more willing to sacrifice, but right. you're unwilling to sacrifice when it's not a, a choice, right? When it's in fact right. theft. Um, so is this kind of getting us to philosophy being greater than economics? That makes me think wisdom is better than strength. The Proverbs say. Yeah. Yeah. Philosophy is greater than economics simply because economics pretends to be determinative and hides the fact that it has this philosophical basis. You have to, in, in order to think about economics the way that it's discussed or finance the way that it's discussed as if it's obvious and normal. And, you know, if you're having an argument in a group and someone brings up either legal penalties or financial difficulties, that should shut down discussion or determine the decision. All of that presumes that money or the power to tax or the power to inflict penalties, that those things should be determinative of all human relationships. So when I think about it this way, like if you don't, if you, if you're raising children and you don't step back and think, is there a time where I, or my church or my extended family can help these children get started in life? Okay. If no one steps back and thinks that then those children will then have their lives determined by ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, in a certain sense, because of its effect on all other rates, interest rates, and therefore all other markets, your children's lives will be determined by the bond market. How do you feel about the bond market? What do you know about the bond market? Do you, do you know what that is or understand how bonds operate or do you care? Well, instead of letting the bond market determine everything about your children's ability to like buy a house, why don't you help them? Or why don't you have the church collectively help them or have the extended family collectively help them? The point there is that the more that a person's life is surrounded by concrete gifts, not just like the better or less stressful the life will be along with all the physical and spiritual benefits of those things, but also the more that the person's life will be determined by love rather than demands. And it doesn't mean that, you know, 
no stress and no demands is actually good. It's that, that, that would be good for nobody. No stress, no demands, no challenges, no improvement, right? That would be, that would be bad. But the idea that all of your life should be essentially determined by financial markets, except for like whether or not you're allowed to come to Christmas dinner. And that's going to be determined by what we've heard about the Omicron variant, right? I mean, you can see how these kinds of things have seeped into so much of our lives that our lives are constantly being determined by these completely external and uncaring forces, right? But, you know, if you're not making your whole family mask to come to Christmas, you, your whole family may be subject to interest rate changes and no one's doing anything about that. And no one even sees it as absurd. Well, it seems that there was a generation for whom this worked out pretty well. And then I don't know where the cutoff line was, but um, yeah. they're retired now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the rest of us are on the bottom saying, wait, 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 how come we got empty buckets down here? Um, so I don't know. I don't want to say why is that, but I mean, were they were they just hoodwinked? I mean, uh. I, I don't I don't think so. I think that what you have in the generation that is that is either in or or just about to enter retirement really throughout the West in the way we've been discussing it this year. So including like Australia you have a peculiar combination of economic resurgence and abundance of every single kind in the past 70 years, even in countries like Germany that were completely devastated by the second and also the first world wars. That abundance has meant that if you play by the rules and work hard, life will work out for you. The thing that (laughs) I'm I'm not sure many of us have thought about before relatively recently is how strange that is, mm-hmm. that abundance would both be there and also increase throughout a person's lifetime. And if he simply follows the rules, now the rules didn't used to include booster subscription service. That's new, but those are still the rules, right? But if you follow the rules, things will work out for you. That is normal within living memory. It's really abnormal within human history, because most of human history has been so much more subject to forces of disease, war, actual pandemics, all of these sorts of things, such that life has seemed more precarious, stranger, less subject to my control. Money as a technology gives me a sense of abundant control. And if the vast majority of your population has seen more money or at least more consumer goods coming into their lives throughout most or all of their lives, then they have an immense sense of control, at least as long as you follow the rules. And maybe that's what's caused the COVID story to give them so much fear and to make them so willing to do things like ignore the gaslit lies, the changing narratives and whatnot is because they're trying to retain that control, which is evidently gone. <laughs> right, 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 right. Gone. Yeah, and I, and I think the exceptions within that generation of people who would be in their 60s, 70s or 80s are going to be either subgroups that never particularly followed the rules or or weren't bought in. You know, the Amish are one example of that that people will know of, but it could also be somebody whose life did not pan out that way or whose mindset for whatever reason was always different, but for people who are conditioned to be, to behave in ways that are understood as normal or obvious 
it generally did work out. So it's totally understandable to me if they see, for instance, the unvaccinated as a problem, because the unvaccinated are sort of like the same category as people who didn't, if they got, you know, if they didn't want to go to Vietnam, didn't get draft deferments in the right way, or had their number drawn, but tried to run away, right? They didn't play by the rules. This playing by the rules thing is really important (laughs) for populations that are obsessed with money. Because money involves obeying certain rules that are stated and then require you to adhere to them, right? So a society controlled by money will look very different from a society controlled by, let's say, physical strength or war or something. It is a society in which following the rules is of the utmost importance to the whole system because the system runs on money, which really is a technology of trust, (laughs) <laughs> Does yeah. this actually matter yeah. or are you just trying to, you know, hand me Confederate dollars? Yeah, the, the rules are the skeleton of the story. And, the, you know, how do you know that this money is worth something? Right. Because we all That's agree right. on this subset of things about this money. That's right. Um, which the Incas and the Spanish would not. How's that for a segue tangent? Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. And we're, and we're close to time here. So this is a good place to end too, is that one of the things that changes prices forever throughout first the Western world, and then later because of the West, the entire world, is the enormous provision of currency, especially silver, by the Spanish through the Habsburg dynasty to Europe. And that provision of raw metals that will be turned into coins comes out of Spain's conquest of the Americas. That conquest, its richest source, is a place in the Andes called Potosí, where they will have an enormous uh, mining operation and will force the conquered uh, tribes, including the Incas, to work in those mines for a certain amount of time each year, each grown man providing labor in order to get this being sort of the CPUs of, of, you know, early modern cryptocurrency are these Indian men And they're going to dig these metals out of the mountain, and then the metals will be refined and then minted as coins, which will then be circulated. Okay. What's ironic is that the Incas knew that all of this was there and had a relatively recent empire when the Spanish arrived. But the Incas were using gold and silver for purely decorative purposes. So (laughs) the Incas are operating with the amount of relative sophistication, even of accounting in a certain sense, with the not counting system that they have for tracking where supplies are. They have a fairly complex logistical system and a really great road system, despite it, you know, it's being relatively slow because they don't, they don't have horses. The Incas are operating without money. So this is not just hunter-gatherer tribes. This is you know, your, your farming ancestors in the 19th century probably aren't really using money. And this is also the Incan empire, not using money. They're using the gold and silver that they know is there as decoration. So you can see that from, from that very example, that money is not natural. It is what we make it. It, It's kind of all fiat currency. And if you want to think about it this way, and once we make it that, it works as much as we want it to work as a technology because the Spanish can't just haul giant, you know, loads of silver back to Europe. If no one in Europe 
cares about silver, right? They they can't they can't haul you know pineapples back to Europe and exchange them all over Europe as currency. They have to use silver or gold. They do. This is going to change prices in Europe forever and eventually the world. And that all happens because the Spaniards decide that what they see the Inca wearing in a decorative, isn't this cool to look at way is actually something that can change their capacity to control European finance and therefore European politics. And all of that is because the other Europeans agree that it matters, that it's worth something. So when you're thinking about money, before you start thinking about how much do I have, how much do I want to get, how do I get more? That's what a lot of, you know, pretty much all of us think about sometimes. Luther says, I think, extremely perceptively that the vice of youth is lust and the vice of middle and old age is greed. (laughs) How do I get more of this stuff? Before you think about how to get more of it, maybe you do need more of it. But before that, you got to think about how much of this is really just decorative. What else is it good for? Now, now the precious metal story, it goes back a lot further than Spain. And I think Mm -hmm. it's going to go back past the Medicis, but you you mentioned the Medicis in the notes and I alluded to them earlier. So, and you mentioned accounting just a moment ago. So you want to kind of try to tie it together a little bit. I mean, someone might say to you, well, yeah, but gold's been been used a long time just because the Incas didn't get it. didn't mean that it's not actually more valuable than say poop shells. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Money, this, this really just depends on your framework. And if your framework gets big enough, a lot of things that seem to have mattered, quote, forever or, quote, for a very long time, don't. So the minting of coins as such, of coins in precious metals, the earliest date on that in Western antiquity is Lydia, which is in what's now Turkey, in about you know the 7th or 6th century BC. So maybe that sounds like a really long time ago, but I studied the Bible for a living and that's really not that long ago. And it's like after the also, Old Testament yeah, more or less, right? Like almost yeah. entirely after the Old Testament. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> the uh, I mean the the point of teaching Latin and Greek with Greek legend going far back beyond that point that I just said is it gives you a different sense of time. Similarly, you study the Bible, gives you a different sense of time. When you have a different sense of time, you have a different sense of everything, including of money. So you can see it come into existence, and there are other forms in which it works, usually depending on resource availability in a society. That's how you get like wampum shells in you know, North America prior to, but also continuing after white settlement, whites even adopting wampum shells along with Spanish doubloons as kind of, those are kind of your big currencies in frontier colonial America, because the hard currency produced in, in Britain is barely available. I mean, that that's actually part of why we revolt is our inability to pay debts in desired specie. So whatever is available is going to be used. When that begins to be the provision of hard currency and a precious metal, that is always going to be associated with the, not just accounting of, you know, how much do I have, but also who's in charge. Now, I think with the Medici, who's in charge is always, there's always something tricky about money, right? And remember that, that money and exchange are the province in Greek and Roman mythology of the trickster god, Hermes or Mercury, right? So there's always something a little slippery about this. So the Medici are unique for their capacity to get a bunch of different debtors, 
when banks start out, and we'll talk about this more next week, but when they start out in medieval Europe, they will usually rise and fall with the fortunes of their biggest debtor. Sometimes, you know, maybe they'll have one or two debtors, but they're both engaged in, you know, seafaring or farming or something. And that goes south for whatever reason, and then the bank falls with it. The Medici realized that the way for money to flourish and to get into more nooks and crannies of life and therefore to shore up the bank is for money to be more widely available to a wider array of people. So the way to make sure that my money is valuable is not by saying, hey, it's pure gold because somebody's going to be like, well, I don't need any gold. <laughs> like I actually have everything I need and I am, you know, building a barn to store more stuff. So I actually, and I'm using the labor that I already have and whatever, and my cousin's coming over. So I don't need any gold. Well, you might need gold if you need something else that you didn't know you need. So what I need to do is make more people debtors in order to expand banking and banking is going to grow as the number of debtors expands. And that's the innovation that, you know, we'll talk about next time, but the sovereignty, I think, is therefore always tricky because if you think about money as a technology for managing debt, then the question is not just whose face is on the coin, but also who controls how many coins there are and where do the coins come from and who holds most of them. And that is almost never the guy whose face is on the coin. So you need the money to pay your debts. So let me loan you something so that you will need to go get money to pay your debts. And if you don't need <laughs> you anything, let me tell you what you don't have that you don't know about so that I can loan you money so that you will have to go get money to pay off what you have now spent. And that's where yeah. uh, the final point in your outline. And if you want to say something about it, we, we got a moment yeah. here. Yeah. Um, the real revolution here is not in the technology of uh, stored work in stories about stuff, uh, money, right. but it's in the lending of money as a way to exercise power over larger and larger groups yes. of people. Yeah, exactly. Because the technology of money is so simple and so primitive, really, that there's an exercise that they do in an intro class at Harvard Business School to explain how you know banking works. And it starts out with a very simple medium of exchange that if all those people in that business school class decided and had enough power, maybe they do, since they went to Harvard Business School, they could just decide that the entirety of the world now has to value these ripped up sheets of paper passed around in a classroom in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The real revolution and the thing that is therefore somewhat hard to understand, mercurial, slippery, is how money lending works. And therefore, what kind of power money lending called when it's usually more respectable at a larger scale done to nations, sovereigns, large commercial enterprises is called banking when it's given to people who are charged exorbitant interest rates on very small paychecks. It's usually called payday lending. But the revolution here is really in the technology of money lending. It's not in the technology of money, which is itself relatively simple, so simple that we could define it pretty simply. The story that we are going to be telling next week and a couple of weeks after that is really about a revolution in how money lending or banking occurs, because that will set us up for who is peculiarly important and powerful in the modern world. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. Proverbs 10, verse 15, you are listening to A Brief History of Power. 
You know where to find us or you would not be here. Are you wondering where my sermons went or where Saturday morning chill went? Well, sorry, it wasn't really clear about this in every avenue. I figured most of you would find me if you wanted to. But if you are looking for those things, they've just diverged into new podcasts. So you'll have to search iTunes or Spotify for Saved. That'll get you the sermons of Pastor Fisk. And uh, Stop the White Noise with Jonathan and Meredith. That's the Saturday morning show. It is available in audio, again, in Spotify or iTunes. Stop the White Noise and Saved. You should check them out.